Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. So we are, uh, we worked through at least what we're going to cover with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and we are moving into the doctrine of soteriology, which is the theological term for salvation. So that's what we're going to, we're going to walk through tonight. We're going to walk through the doctrine of salvation. If you've got a copy of your Bible with you, in just a few moments we'll read from a passage of Scripture in Romans 3, but we're not quite, not quite there yet. Um, if we look at a uh, panoramic view of the doctrine of salvation, one of the things we would discover is that the Bible uses all sorts of terms to describe what salvation is. There are a couple, there are a couple folks, Terry, you can get a hand out. The, the Bible describes salvation using all, using all sort of um, terms, and we're going to try over the next several weeks to unpack those terms. In fact, if you want to turn over to the back side of the page, uh, you can see the weeks that we're, we're going to try to cover. I anticipate that that's going to be the structure we follow. Uh, It's possible that we'll slow down a little bit or maybe even speed up, but that's tentatively what we're going to do if you look at week one. So if you look at one of those things on the list and you say, I really want to hear what the pastor has to say about that, uh, then you're welcome to make make a plan to be here on that Wednesday night. Or if you look at that list and say you're not interested at all, well, that gives you a clue to say, okay, you don't have to show up that night to learn about that particular aspect of the doctrine of salvation. But I'm going to do my best to unpack it in a way that helps us make sense of it. Tonight, what we're going to do is an overview. We'll try to give you a biblical basis for the doctrine of salvation in a way that helps us navigate where we're going to be going. And so, in order to do that, there are a couple things I want to start with. One is, I want us to to note some cautions. Say, we're talking about salvation. Why Why do we need to be cautious? Well, let me explain what I mean by that. So there are three cautions that, that I want us to just, just be aware of. The first one is this. We must avoid the danger of treating conversion as a formula or work. Now, I, I'm going to do my best over the next six or seven weeks to be as precise in my language as possible. Because when, when we as Christians say something like this, have you been saved? Okay? Have you been saved? We mean by that, have you had a conversion experience? I mean, have you had that moment where you knew you were a sinner and you confessed your sins, you repented of your sins, and you put your faith in Jesus? That's typically what we mean. But when the Bible uses the word salvation and when we use the word the doctrine of salvation, we mean by salvation more than just the moment of conversion. We mean all of the aspects of salvation, and there are many aspects of salvation. Regeneration, redemption, uh, justification, sanctification, glorification, uh, election, predestination. All of those terms and many more are biblical terms that fit into the doctrine of salvation. So when we say, when I'm talking about the doctrine of salvation proper, I'm talking about, in, in one sense, all of those things. Now, when we talk about conversion, what we mean by that is that moment when you realized you were a sinner and you confessed your sins and trusted in Jesus to be your Savior. And so here's the caution. 
as Christians, we have to avoid the danger of treating conversion as either a formula or a work. Uh, we'll, We'll talk about a work a little more in depth in a moment when we look at the doctrine of justification. But what do I mean by work? Well, we can't work our way into salvation. That's clear teaching from Scripture. That's why we had the Protestant Reformation, that there is not something you can do to become saved based on your good deeds. That, that's not the way salvation works. And there are denominations and there are churches that teach that there are things that you do, uh, sacraments that you participate in, experiences that you have, things that you learn, things that you say, things that you, ways that you act, that if you do that in that particular order or fashion, you have become a Christian or you have experienced conversion. We've got to be careful that we don't treat conversion as a work. I don't think we're in danger of that here, but there are some appropriate theological cautions and places where we're going to kind of interact with that over the next several weeks. We also need to be careful that we don't treat conversion as a formula. This is or can be a tendency in Baptist life. And, and, and what do I mean by that? Well, I've been to revival services, and you've been to revival services, and I've heard preachers stand up and, and, and preach this uh, kind of fire-breathing message that's very emotionally uh, uh, interactive message. And, and then what they do, they, they ask, if anyone doesn't know that they're saved, they ask you to respond. And some of those preachers will ask everybody to repeat after them a sinner's prayer. As if a sinner's prayer repeated on someone's lips is conversion. And in that sense, conversion has been treated as a formula. You follow these express words from these lips and you're, uh, you're converted. There is nowhere in the pages of Scripture where a sinner's prayer is ever articulated. I don't think it's wrong to express your faith using a prayer that confesses your sins and trusts in Jesus as your Savior. There's, there are implications that, that kind of lead to that from the book of Romans and other places. But the Bible never teaches that the means of conversion is, you, you know, bow your head and repeat this sinner's prayer after me. And sometimes evangelists, pastors, churches have been guilty of, of treating conversion as a formula. Follow these things, repeat the sinner's prayer, walk down an aisle. And in revivalistic traditions, there were, they were, they were kind of, there's a mindset of walking down the aisle, shaking the preacher's hand, you know, uh, experiencing that, that movement, which is nothing wrong with that. There, that can absolutely be a means by which you're expressing your faith in Jesus. But that in and of itself doesn't mean you're converted. Repeating a sinner's prayer doesn't mean you're converted. So there's a caution, and I'm going to come back to this through the course of our study the doctrine of salvation, we need to be cautious that we don't treat conversion as either a work or a formula. It is, if, if it is a work, well, it is a work, but it's God's work. It's not our work. And maybe I should qualify that as our work. God's work is to, is to convert, and he does that through the Holy Spirit and what Jesus did on the cross. Let me give you a second caution. We must avoid, to, to, we must avoid the tendency to define salvation by only one or the other of its aspects. The tendency to define salvation by one or the other of its aspects. So, what do I mean by that? Well, again, our terminology, have you been saved? By that we mean, have you been converted? And most often when we talk about that, we're talking about when we've been justified, when we've been declared right by God, which is an aspect of salvation. But it is not the only aspect of salvation. 
And so one of the things I want us to, to kind of get a broader view on is that the doctrine of salvation is bigger than just the moment of your conversion. It expresses more than that. And so the reason that that tendency is a little bit, uh, is a little bit I don't want to say dangerous, because the, the first caution is a true danger. We could lead people astray. The second caution is just a, a little bit of, um, uh, of not, not as clear as we could be about what the Bible says about salvation. Salvation is so full and so beautiful in the pages of Scripture that we can't just limit it to one of its aspects. Justification is tremendously important, but God's also sanctifying us, and God will also glorify us, and God also redeemed us. And, and there are more multitude of, of aspects of salvation that ought to deepen our faith and encourage us as followers of Jesus. Here's the third caution. We must avoid the possibility of seeing salvation only through the eyes of an insider. So, I'm speaking probably to everyone in the room who is converted. I mean, if you're not, then let's talk tonight. Okay? I'll tell you how you can know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And so, sometimes what happens is the language we use is language that insiders are comfortable using. And sometimes the way we think about our Christian experience is, is oriented by the experience we have as Christians. And, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. We're part of God's family. We're members of a church. We have an obligation to one another. But here's what I, I, I need you to remember. The Bible is absolutely clear that there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who have been saved, been forgiven and redeemed, and those who have not. That, that's it. It's the, those two groups of people. And for anyone who is not a part of the group of people who've been redeemed, they're going to spend an eternity separated from God forever. I, I don't say that happily, but that's what the Bible teaches. So our view as Christians has got to remain a view that is considerate of those who don't yet know Christ. That doesn't mean we adjust what we believe. It just means we're very aware of the fact that the people we're talking to, the people we're interacting with, need Jesus. And just because we live in Wilkes County, North Carolina, with a church on every street corner, and like 200 and some churches and a bunch of Baptist churches, doesn't mean conversion is being communicated clearly at all of those churches, and doesn't mean that all the people you interact with, whether they went to church as a kid or went to vacation Bible school, or their membership is somewhere, that someone is genuinely converted and genuinely a follower of Jesus. So our perspective as Christians has got to remain outward, meaning that we're aware of the fact that there are lost people around us, and we'll come back to that at the end in one of our takeaways, okay? So those are the three cautions we're going we're gonna to start with. Let me give you a doctrinal principle that uh, kind of gives us a baseline. It's this, a proper and biblical view of conversion, that is the moment of salvation in the life of the sinner, is the healthiest way to help sinners become followers and believers to become disciples. What do I mean by that? Uh, as I've taught at Bible college and as I've interacted with, with students and, and Christians over the years, there are lots of complaints about the church. And, and some of those complaints are legitimate. One of those complaints happens to be, why do you have so many members but not as many attenders as you have members? And that's true of Wilkesboro Baptist Church. We have lots more members than we do attenders. What's, 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 what is the problem with that? What's the deal there? Now, for some of that, 
I mean, it's obvious. Some of our members are shut-ins, so they're not able to attend any longer. That doesn't speak to their salvation or their conversion. But there are a lot of folks who had some kind of momentary experience. Maybe it was absolutely real. Maybe it wasn't absolutely real. And they were at church for a while. They might have even been baptized, might have even joined the church, but they're nowhere to be found. Where are they? And what do we do about that? Well, I've done this for 20-some years now as an associate pastor and a pastor. At some level, sometimes there's not much you can do about that because people have free will. They, and we'll talk about that in the due course of our study. But one thing we can do about that is be very clear with what we mean by conversion and be very clear with what we mean by salvation. Because the Bible never assumes, there is never a, a picture in the Bible of someone who is converted that doesn't then follow Jesus with their life. The biblical like model of someone who is converted is someone who then lives their life as a Christ follower. They worship, they learn, they serve, they replicate. If we're using our terminology for what it means to be a disciple at Wilkesboro Baptist Church. There, there's never a picture where it is okay for someone to express faith and then walk away from the church or express faith and never live out their lives as Christians. And so my personal belief as a pastor is that the discipling process begins even before conversion takes place. Meaning when I talk to someone about the gospel and talk to someone about Jesus, I'm inviting them to put their faith in Jesus alone. But I'm also letting them know that an invitation to put their faith in Jesus alone is an invitation to follow Jesus with their life. And then as a church, our job is to come alongside those new believers or those old new believers or those maturing believers and help them in their journey as Christians. So a proper and a healthy view of conversion is an, is an assist for that process. It doesn't solve it all. I'm not sure we'll ever solve it all, but it's a, it, it is a part of that process. Let me give you an overview. Soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Uh, and, and tonight what we're going to do is we're going to look at three aspects, three of the many, but these three kind of form the framework of salvation, and we're going to walk through these. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. It would be uh, very helpful to use this terminology. We have been saved, that is justification, the moment of conversion. We are being saved, that's sanctification, the process of continually being made holy in a relationship with God. And we will be saved. That's the process, the event of glorification, when God makes us like himself uh, to a degree, uh, reading 1 John 3, 2. So what do we mean by those three aspects of the doctrine of salvation? Okay, justification. Justification is the aspect of salvation where we are declared righteous by God. God says about us we're now righteous. Let's read what that looks like. Uh, Romans chapter 3. And if you will, pick up in verse 21. Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified, and that's the word, it's a, the, the, the aspect of salvation, are justified, it's an aorist passive, or an aorist, which in the, Greek, in the Greek sense, it's a past tense. It's something that has taken place. It means it's, a, it's an event that took place. 
are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, that is absolutely right and righteous and holy, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the bottom line is that what Paul says here is that justification is that moment in the sinner's life when God says about that sinner, they're no longer held to account for their sin. Their sin has been paid for on the cross. That's what justification is. This is the aspect of salvation we most closely associate with conversion. So what, what I think Scripture teaches, and we're going to work through the order of salvation at some point in our weeks ahead. But when someone expresses their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, that's the moment of justification. Or, or we could, it could be the moment of regeneration. I don't, I don't want to bugger up tonight, but the moment of conversion is the moment of justification. When God says about us, we're no longer held account for our sinfulness that was dealt with on the cross. It's what God does. God is the one who justifies. God is always the one who justifies. I can't justify myself. That's why at the the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther pushed so hard against the Roman Catholic uh, theology. If you want to read a really interesting set of conversations, uh, a couple years ago I was writing on this topic, and I I did some of these words in in, in regular posts for for my blog site and shared them with the church, and I did one on justification. And then I had a, a Roman Catholic reader, no idea who they were, Roman Catholic reader proceeded to correct some of my misclarification, misstatements on Roman Catholic theology. And we went into this, uh, this kind of back and forth. There were about 10 or 12 uh, conversational comments that went on between myself and this Roman Catholic about justification. The biggest problem with what he did is I've mentioned before that salvation is multifaceted. It includes justification, but it includes all other aspects of salvation as well. What he did in his kind of response back and forth is he conflated salvation and justification, meaning that salvation at a certain level is a process. We'll talk about that, talk about that in sanctification. But he said justification is a process too, meaning that it needs to be an ongoing thing. That's not the Bible. The Bible never says that you experience justification, but then need to be justified all over again. It never uses that terminology. It always uses the terminology, you have been justified. Justification is a moment, an event, when God says about us, we are no longer guilty for the sins that we've committed. It doesn't mean that we're no longer a sinner. We, we are still sinners, but we're no longer held account because our sins were transferred to Jesus on the cross. They're paid for, and so God has declared us just. That's what justification is. It's that glorious moment of freedom. That's why so many of us, at that moment of conversion, we did experience a, a, an uplifting emotional experience of freedom. Like There's a weight that went off our shoulders. You don't have to have that experience in order for salvation to be legitimate. So many of us did. Why? Because we bore the weight of our sins. We felt sinful. And then God said about us, 
And by the way, what God says about us is more true than anything else that anybody else says about us, including what we say about ourselves. If God says you're justified, you're no longer held account for the sins that you've committed, beloved, you're justified. You no longer are held account for the sins you've committed. Nothing truer could be said. And the scripture uses, Paul uses the language, so God could be just and the justifier. What does he mean by that? Well, God is supremely holy. Uh, Some have wondered over the years, why could not God, or why could God not merely say about all the people in the world, I just wiped your sins away? You're forgiven. Why couldn't he do that? Well, the reason he doesn't do that, and the reason I don't believe he could do that, is because his holiness demands payment for our offense toward His holiness. The reason we need salvation is because as sinners, we have committed an affront against the holiness and the righteousness of God. All of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. That's why it's there. We are sinful. Paul goes back in chapter 2 and chapter 1, and he talks about how the Greeks are sinful and the the, the idolaters are sinful. And he talks in chapter 2 about how the Jews are sinful. They have the law and they still sin. He says in chapter 3, all of us are sinful. We have committed an affront against the holiness of God. So God can't just say, won't just say, hey, you're forgiven, carte blanche, anybody in the world. No, he has to be just, means supremely holy, and still justifies. That's why the cross is such a glorious, terrible event. I mean, it is glorious in that it means our salvation. It is terrible in that God punished His Son for our sins. But that event, Jesus hanging on the cross for your sins and my sins, functions as the reason why God can justify us of our sins and yet remain absolutely just and righteous. Our sins receive payment. That's also why, and we'll deal with this in course, you know, doesn't it seem like a really bad deal for someone to sin and go to hell forever? I mean, it, it, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, how, how is that fair? Well, it's fair because none of us deserve heaven and the forgiveness God offers. And, and in order for God to remain holy, He can't just let anybody in heaven freely without any kind of sacrifice. The cross is the sacrifice, the payment for our sins. That's why God can be just and the justifier. So justification is essentially that we have been saved. It's that moment of experiencing conversion. Let's move to the second aspect of salvation, sanctification. Sanctification is that aspect of salvation where we are set apart for God and are being made holy by God. And so it's multifaceted. Sanctification itself is multifaceted. To give you an example of what I mean, uh, Vince, thank you for preaching for us uh, this past Sunday. And Vince dealt with a passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where the word being sanctified was used. Uh, and that was used in the uh, past tense or aorist tense in that particular section of Scripture. So it carries with it the idea that we have been sanctified. And there, there's truth to that. When you're converted, you've been sanctified. In that sense, that means being set apart. The the most proper use of being made holy or being sanctified is that you're set apart. 
It's why in uh, Isaiah chapter 6 and Revelation chapter 4, when the angels say, holy, 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 what they mean by that is God is other. God is separate. He's set apart from sinners, okay? And so being sanctified in the, in the past tense means that we've been set apart for God, that we're no longer, Romans 6, bound by the sinfulness that, that we carried with us before conversion. We've been made declared right with God. We've been justified. We've been set apart. We've been sanctified. It's why that Christians have an opportunity for spiritual victory over sin. Not in the perfectionist sense. We'll get into that in due course. But in it, we have the opportunity to consider ourselves free of sin because God has made us free of sin. He has set us apart, okay? That gets to the, the two aspects of sanctification. Let me walk through these real quick. This is at the top. The two aspects of sanctification are positional sanctification and progressive sanctification. Positional sanctification is what I was just talking about. We've been set apart for God. Set apart. We, we have been redeemed by Christ, although I haven't defined that aspect of salvation. We've been converted, talked about that. We've been justified. God has said about us that we're righteous, and that means that we've been sanctified. We've been set apart for God. So what does God see when he sees you and me? Does he see a sinner? No. He sees a saint. Somebody needed that encouragement tonight. He knows you're a sinner. He knows what he did to deal with your sin. He knows he sent Jesus on the cross. But what does God see when he sees us? He sees a saint. In fact, if you think about how Paul uses sinner and saint language in his, in his letters, he doesn't address people very often as sinners. He addresses the church as saints. Now, he acknowledges sin. He says, I'm the chief of sinners. That's a self-assessment of his own life. But what does he say about the church? You're saints. It means God has set you apart as holy means that's how God sees you. And a big part of Christian living, a big part of the whole story of, of salvation is learning to see ourselves the way God sees us, learning to identify ourselves the way God identifies us. And he says we're saints. He says we're set apart. That's positional sanctification. That is as true now or at the moment of conversion or in the future as it ever will be. But then there's, there's a challenge to sanctification, and that's the second part, progressive sanctification. We are being made holy by God. That's the process part. I'm not as holy as I will be. I might be more holy than I was, or I might not be. But in sanctification, it's the part of our salvation that is still in process. I mean, it's why God didn't automatically take you to heaven at your moment of conversion. Romans 8 puts it this way, and we won't get into predestination tonight, but we are predestined, Romans 8, 29, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. The whole point of our conversion, the reason of our justification, the, the reason God sanctifies us is so that he will make us look like Jesus. That's the point of the process of salvation, the process of sanctification. He wants to make us look like Christ. That's progressive. That is ongoing. That, that is still going on in your life and in my life. And hopefully, we're a little closer to what we ought to look like today than we were yesterday. Uh, Andrew Davis, in a wonderful book, 
just an incredible book entitled uh, uh, The Infinite Journey. I'm not all the way through it. I'm, I'm working through it. I would commend it to you. He said this. He said, sanctification is different than justification. In justification, our effort and works are unnecessary and unwelcome. They're repugnant to God. In sanctification, they are essential, celebrated, commanded by God. He describes it this way. There are no degrees of justification. We're either justified or we're not. There are infinite degrees of sanctification based on how conformed to the infinitely high standard of Christ that we are. So the reason that we ought to see salvation in a broader view than just merely justification is because God's still saving us. When you use that language, God's still making us holy. He's still working on you and me. And how do we experience sanctification? Well, we could go back last week and look at Galatians chapter 5. The more we're filled with the fruit of the Spirit, the more we express love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, the more those things are evident in our lives, the more we are becoming holy as God intended. We're in a process of that. Now, God sees us as saints. That's why we get to heaven. God's justified us. That's why we have the right to go to heaven. But God is still working on us to make us holy. That's the process of sanctification. Does that make sense? So we have been saved, justification. We are being saved, sanctification. We will be saved, glorification. That's the third kind of overarching aspect of salvation I want to mention tonight. Glorification is that aspect of salvation where God makes us like himself. Uh, Paul went on right after he said that the purpose of God in predestination and salvation is to conform us to the image of Jesus. He said, for those whom he justified, he also glorified. And then in 1 John 3, 2, the Bible says that we will be like him when we see him because we'll see him as he is. That doesn't mean we'll be deity. It doesn't mean we'll be little gods. It just merely means we'll be glorified. The glorified uh, body that Jesus has... Now, post-resurrection Jesus is the glorified state in which you and I will reside when we're in the presence of God. That's glorification. God doesn't give us His glory, but He shares His glory with us. That should stagger us. I don't deserve anything God's given. Nothing. Neither do you. We're sinners. But God says, now we're saints. And it gets even better because one day we're going to share in his glory because he's going to glorify us. Um, and that's why Paul could say in Romans 8, the, the sufferings of this present world are not worth, to be, worth comparing to the glories of the next. I know some of you have it hard. Um, I, I, there are days I feel like I've got it hard. And then I hear stories from people in my church and other pastors and other friends. And there are some of you that got it hard. And, and, and I, I empathize with you. I pray for you. Our elders met yesterday. And one of the things we did, and I know we've got it. Vince, uh, Vince and I were talking about this this morning. We're, we're talking about we, we need to share back with you what we're doing as elders. Well, the biggest part of what we're doing as elders is praying for you. As, as a church, and there are other aspects of that, and we're still learning and still working through how, the, how that process works out in our meetings, but we're praying through our prayer list, our church list, our church membership list, and 
You know, we're talking about who is there and who is not and where you are and where people are. And some people we don't know where they are and some people we do know what they're going through. Uh, but but in, in that sense, there's, there's, this, there's this understanding that we know some of you are going through some really hard things. Some things you didn't bring on yourself. Just remember, while what we're suffering today lasts for a lifetime... What we experience there lasts forever. It, it, it gets us through. It helps us to know that this experience is not the permanent experience that we're going to take place. Glorification. That's uh, an aspect of salvation we ought to dwell on a little bit more. Because I promise it will encourage us. That's why we sing about heaven. That's why we praise God for, for heaven. It's not all there is to salvation, but it is a glorious truth. Let me give you four takeaways. And I'm going to do the takeaways a little different in, uh, in at least the next six or seven weeks. I'm going to give you a, a theological takeaway, a relational takeaway, a worship takeaway, and an evangelistic takeaway. The reason I'm going to do that is because I think that the doctrine of salvation is gloriously multifaceted. And it is the storyline of Scripture. I mean, I've, been, I, I've shared with you before that I read through Robert Murray Machane's reading plan so I read in the Old Testament and the New Testament every day in my Bible reading. I've been reading again through Exodus, and I'm reading in 2 Corinthians, and I'm reading in Luke. And so today I read that uh, in, in, in Exodus 20, the Lord said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then he gave the Ten Commandments. Rescue, redemption, preceded law. That's a good truth. And the whole part of the Exodus story is God rescued his people. And I'm reading in Luke 23 that... Jesus is the means of our rescue. His death on the cross, his suffering is the means of our rescue. And then I'm reading what Paul says in 2 Corinthians about how we're to live out our rescue by being generous to others and, and living out our faith as sanctified followers of Jesus. That's just four, three passages of Scripture that deal with redemption. I, I, if you go back and read the Bible, and I, sh- I, I would hope all of you are reading the Bible regularly, but if you go back and read the Bible, it's all about... God saving his people from Genesis to Revelation. Genesis 3, the very first message of salvation. Your seed will bruise the heel or will, the, the snake will crush the, the seed, the heel of, of the seed of the woman, and he will crush the head of the snake. It's, it's a prophetic acknowledgement of Jesus' work on the cross. And you move all the way to Revelation where the, the serpent's destroyed finally and fully, and Jesus reigns in the book of Revelation. And everything in between is the story of redemption. Exodus, the story of the people of Israel being redeemed. And all the pictures we've been looking, about, looking at in the book of Hebrews point to salvation. And then you see glorious pictures of redemption. How about Hosea and Gomer? That story, man, what a story in the Old Testament. It's a story of God's mercy and redemption. What about all the ways that David talks about redemption in the Psalms? And that's just Old Testament. What about how God protected and provided for Naomi and Ruth? That's a picture of redemption. And then you get into the New Testament where Jesus lives out redemption and Paul talks about it. The Bible is a book about salvation. And the better we understand salvation in these facets, the better we'll live out our Christian life as God expects. So the takeaways are going to be intentionally kind of multifaceted and specific. So here's the first one. The theological takeaway is this. Because salvation is multifaceted, because it's multifaceted, 
we must explore the various lenses, angles, and pictures of salvation in the Bible to better grasp what God has done for us in Christ. In, in our doctrinal study, it's both doctrinal and devotional, it carries with it the idea that we're to learn, we're to deepen our understanding. Well, there's hardly a thing we can do better than deepen our understanding of the salvation we've experienced through Christ. Because the doctrine of salvation requires a proper view of the doctrine of God. It is built upon a proper view of revelation, what God says is authoritative and true. It is shaped by a proper view of Christology and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit because our salvation is not possible were it not for God's plan and Jesus' accomplishment of our salvation on the cross and the Spirit's work in our lives. And the doctrine of salvation is necessitated by the doctrine of humanity because we're sinners. So the doctrine of salvation is really like the centerpiece of the spoke. If you, we had theology as a, and this is a bad analogy, but if we had theology as kind of like a tire, the centerpiece spoke would be for us, from our perspective, the doctrine of salvation. Because every other doctrine that we've studied interfaces with the doctrine of salvation. So the better we grasp the aspects of salvation and the beauty of it and the pictures of it, the better we're going to grasp God and see His greatness and His grace and His mercy, and the better we're going to be able to live out our lives as followers of Jesus. So, hold on. I I fully realize that some of the things we're going to talk about in the next few weeks are going to be tension-filled, maybe a little bit controversial. It's kind of funny how in the church we complicate the simple and argue about the, the basic, but we've done that for centuries. And the doctrine of salvation is not different than that. There are all sort of positions around salvation that can be debated and discussed. I spent years in Bible college arguing about some of the things we're going to talk about in a few weeks. And, and it's funny how passionate people get about their particular theological view on, on or around the doctrine of salvation. I'm, I'm not going to shy away from that. I'm going to try to explain it. And you might not land where I land on some of these things. Okay, that's perfectly fine. What we're going to try to do is be biblical. Share with you. Here's what the Bible says. We can't ignore this word because it's in the Bible. I had somebody the other day, I'll, I'll probably repeat this. I was asking a question about somebody's doctrine, and, and they kind of commented, well, well, you know, I'm not sure about predestination. And, and he didn't go on to explain. And, and my first thought was, well, I know you may not like the way some people use the word predestination, but it's in the Bible. So even if, if we may not land in the place some other, some doctrinal position lands on how we define predestination, we can't say, I don't like predestination. Well, you can, but then you're saying you don't like what God says. So we, we, what I'm trying to say is we're going to try to be biblical as we look at these facets. Uh, takeaway number two is a relational takeaway. Because salvation is an invitation to relationship, being saved means knowing God. Christianity is not a religion proper. Christianity is not about us getting to God. Christianity is about how God came to us. And God came to us not to tell us how we have to live a whole lot better in order to earn or keep the salvation He offers. No, God came to us to enter into a relationship with us. I was talking with somebody the other day as I was sharing the gospel. Christianity is a relationship. That's what it is. It is entering in a relationship with Jesus. So guess what? As we study and as we work through this, we can know God better the more 
deeply we interact with these truths about salvation. Let me give you takeaway number three. It's a worship takeaway. Because salvation is detailed in the storyline of Scripture and accomplished by the Trinity, salvation invites us to worship the God who saves. Talked about worship a little bit last week. We talk about it on Sundays. What is worship? It's adoring God for who He is. And if God will go to these lengths, the lengths of sending His own Son from heaven to earth to take on human flesh, to die on a cruel cross so that you and I could be forgiven, justified, and begin the process of sanctification, then that process of invitation into a relationship demands that we worship that God. It's why in our song list, our, our church hymnody, Dustin and Mike and I have been talking about that, kind of creating a church hymnody. We're, we're playing some songs in here on Wednesday nights, just songs that, that we're going to be playing uh, in our worship services. That's why it's so gospel-centric, because the more we think about the truths of the gospel, the, the, the more they encourage the worship of the God who saves, and, and He's worthy of our worship. So one thing that this study should do is it should encourage and motivate us to continually worship God better, because guess what? That's what we're going to be doing forever anyway. We're going to be worshiping the God who saves us, saves us. And when we get there in heaven, we're going to be able to look back and see and see all of the things that we missed, hell, you know, judgment, punishment. And I promise you we're going to be celebratory like we, they are in Revelation. Why? Because we're going to look and see, oh, my goodness, you know, I'm here and I'm not there. And so worship now is kind of a tune-up for what heaven is going to be for those that are believers. Uh, evangelistic takeaway. Because salvation is God's gift an invitation to all who would repent and believe. And it is an open invitation to all who would repent and believe. That's the invitation of the gospel. Because it is that, we must tell what we know and have experienced to those who don't and haven't. So, while we're not going to spend all of our time over the next six or seven weeks doing an evangelism training seminar, I am going to give you some ideas and ways and tips and practices for how to share your faith. Here's why I'm going to do that, because as I mentioned before, the people that you know that don't know Jesus, they're destined to spend eternity separated from God. And it is your job and my job as Christians to tell them about the God who saves. And some of you might ask, well, I don't know how. I've not had an evangelism training course. I've not, I, don't, I don't know what to say. Yeah, you do. You tell what you know. And you tell what you've experienced. You don't have to know everything about the gospel and about the Bible and about biblical truth to tell someone about Jesus. Where do you start? You start with what you know. You know, Jesus died on the cross for their sins and for my sins. You know that Jesus changed your life. You know that Jesus rescued you from a pathway of sin and de depravity. You tell what you know. And the more you love Jesus, the more you'll be willing to tell what you know. Uh, tell what you know to those who don't know and haven't known. So uh, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. This is your participation tonight. Turn on the back. We're, uh, we're one month, 32 days. Wait, does March have 30 or 31 days? 
How many? 31. We're 32 days from Easter Sunday. Today's March 8th. Easter's April 9th. 32 days. Okay? 32 days to pray. 32 days to invite. 32 days to share the gospel. I promise you on Easter Sunday, what we're going to do is we're going to explain the gospel as clearly as humanly possible to those who don't yet know Jesus. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to take just a minute or two and write down a name of a person in each one of these spheres that you think might not know Jesus. Family, friend, work, fun, hobbies, or acquaintances. Just one name. You can write down more than one name. That's perfectly fine. Nothing wrong with that. Here's all I'm going to ask you to do tonight. I'm going to ask you to pray for those that need to know Jesus. Pray for them. Pray that they'll come to know Jesus. All right? Over the course of the next few weeks, as you have that name in front of you, I'm going to try to give you some other aspects of salvation that maybe we could talk to them about. I'm going to ask you to invite them to our Easter Sunday service. In fact, we printed up some invite cards. We're going to have a lot more of these by Sunday. We have about 200 of them here. That would be roughly two to three per person. Love for you to take these. It just simply says where they can join us for our Easter Sunday service. That's all it is. No, no pressure. Just say, hey, we've got an Easter Sunday service. We're all celebrating outside at the Wilkesboro Commons. Love for you to join us. Give us them a time and a place uh, Sunday, April 9th, 10 a.m. I'd love for you to pick up two or three of these and hand out to somebody who you know needs the gospel and keep praying for them that they'll receive Jesus. Why? Well, let me put it this way. I think we as a church ought to deepen our understanding about Jesus. That's why I do this, right? That's why we spend time on Wednesday nights working through doctrines. That's why we're working through the book of Hebrews. It's important. The deeper we are in our faith, that is tremendously important. But do you realize we as a church exist for those who aren't in the church yet? So you've got a child, you've got a grandchild, you've got a neighbor, you've got a coworker, and a friend, an acquaintance that doesn't know Jesus. Folks, the only thing that will matter on their death day is not what job they had, is not whether you embarrassed yourself by telling them about Jesus. It's, it's, none of those things will matter. The only thing will matter is whether they know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That's it. It really is gloriously simple, convicting, and we'll talk about that too over the course of the next few weeks. So write down that person. I'm going to keep asking you to do that. I'm going to ask you to do that every Wednesday from now to Easter. I'm going to ask you to do it on Sundays too, so you're not getting out of it whenever you attend. Keep praying for those people who don't know Jesus. Pick up an invitation card, invite them to Easter Sunday service, pray that God will change their hearts and lives. And uh, guess what? You wonder, can he really do that? Look around. He did with you. He pulled us, some of us, up from some pretty dark places. Man, if he can save you and me, mm, he can still save those that we're worried and concerned about. But it's his job to do that. It's our job to share. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.